Last time on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. She said, we love both of them. Kathy's gone. We love Bob. We need to protect him. Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said, he told me. On the Tuesday that Durst claimed to have called the officer of Connecticut, there is no record of such a call. Does not exist, did not happen. However, there were four collect calls that were made and accepted from Southern New Jersey. The payphones were all adjacent to the Pine Barrens, a notorious mafia burial ground made famous by the Sopranos. Town, dump, bridge, dig, boat, other, shovel or check, car, chuck, rental. So this is my handwriting. While Durst withdrew into himself in New York in the wake of Kathy's disappearance, Susan Berman moved to Los Angeles. That would be the peak of Susan's life. She was successful. She was marrying somebody she cared about. And from that day forward, her life was going to head in a downhill spiral. Now, in late 1999, New York State police detectives secretly began reinvestigating Kathy's disappearance. People are going to find me guilty. I mean, I've, I've been guilty for years in the newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. Now they're really going to find me guilty. So what I did was I decided I got to go into hiding. Despite having never been contacted by investigators, Susan lied to Bob and told him that she had been contacted and planned to speak with the investigator. Now, how do we know this? You know this directly from Bob Durst. I think, Bob, that, that you drove down to Los Angeles, that you drove down there, and... Um, Killed Susan? I do. Killed back? That was going to show that she was murdered by somebody who she truly trusted, who she went into her home, and who she had no fear of whatsoever. Lewin tells the jury that after pulling the trigger, the murderer sent a letter to the Beverly Hills Police Station. So inside the envelope was this cryptic note. And all it says is 1527 Benedict Canyon. And it has the word cadaver. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst, presented by Crime Story Media and ACAST. 's the second day of opening statements and deputy DA John Lewin is already developing a rapport with the jurors in the morning he comes clean about why he was almost late to court and then as I'm leaving the second time and I'm maybe not gonna make it I'm like oh my god did I did I have this tie on last week if I did is the jury gonna notice like oh my god it's the only 
Defense attorney Dick DeGarren jokes that those were the technical difficulties that caused a brief delay in this morning's proceeding. So I'm like, well, do I go change tie? And I'm like, either way, I'm still going to be fast. It's not going to make a difference. It doesn't really make a big difference. So if I am wearing the tie I wore last week, um, I do own more than four ties. From now on, I'm going to organize so I don't repeat. I don't know if I did, but I had a feeling that I had. Humor is a staple of Lewin's prosecutorial style, allowing for a much-needed reprieve and a grim murder trial. But according to Lewin's assistant counsel, Ethan Milius, the jokes aren't frivolous. Milius explained his assessment of Lewin in an interview with LA Magazine. He'll do strange things, he said. He'll be hacking away at his computer very loudly and telling jokes. To truly appreciate his genius, you have to watch the entire trial. He has a plan. Every day is an effort to achieve that plan, and it's somewhat disguised by his eccentricity. When the laughter has abated, Lewin dives back into his opening statement. While presenting evidence, he's strictly business. Lewin explains to the jury the significance of the cadaver note, the cryptic letter sent to the Beverly Hills Police Department after Susan was shot. Now, we know that sometime on December 23rd, 2000, the cadaver note was processed at the Marina Del Rey Postal Annex. Susan's body has not been found yet. That's inside the house. So, obviously, whoever sent that note on uh, knows Susan is dead. <clears throat> yeah, Michelle was a killer. So obviously whoever sent the note knows Susan is dead, says Lewin. The evidence will show that it was her killer. Now, significantly, the word Beverly is spelled incorrectly. Beverly is spelled B-E-V-E-R-L-Y. But in the cadaver note, it's spelled B-E-V-E-R-L-E-Y. That extra E will turn out to be a key piece of evidence in this case. Durst was asked his opinion about the cadaver note during his interviews with Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling for the 2015 HBO documentary series, The Jinx. And Mr. Durst is going to say something here that is going to absolutely be true, but at the time that he says it, he has not agreed or admitted that he wrote the letter. You're writing a note to the police that only the killer could have written. Quote, you're writing a note to the police that only the killer could have written. End quote. It's a statement that Lewin is sure to repeat, especially because on Christmas Eve of 2019, the defense agreed to a stipulation that Robert Durst did in fact write the cadaver note, although Dick DeGaron maintains that his client did not kill Susan Berman and doesn't know who did. Lewin now turns his attention back to the crime scene. He recaps for the jury what the police discovered when they arrived at Susan Berman's home. Now, again, on December 24, 2000, at 12.21 p.m., Catherine Cutter called 911. Officer Rashad Sharif and his fellow officers arrived at the residence at about 12.52 p.m. They made entry. They found her lifeless body on the bedroom office floor. Now, walking through the residence, Sharif made several important observations. There was a single 9mm expended shell casing found near Susan's body. No firearm was located. No forced entry. Windows locked and unbroken. 
no evidence of ransacking, no signs of a struggle. Nothing appeared to have been taken. Purse, credit cards, sitting on the kitchen counter. Lewin tells the jury that they will be hearing testimony from Dr. Mark Fajardo, a forensic pathologist and former coroner of Los Angeles County. He's going to tell you the following. Susan had a single gunshot wound in the back of the head. That was a fatal wound. Dr. Ferraro also concluded that at the time the gun was fired, it was within an inch of the back of Susan's head. He's going to agree this was an execution-type slang. And he's going to say that she was murdered approximately between 10.30 p.m. on December 22nd and 9.30 a.m. on the 23rd. Lewin explains to the jury that the evidence will show that Susan knew her killer. Her friends will testify that Susan was paranoid and wary of people she did not know. One such friend is Steven Silverman. Lewin plays a clip from Silverman's testimony at a prior hearing. No, Susan would not let a stranger into her house. She wouldn't even speak to a stranger at a party. She wouldn't even speak to a stranger at a party. Silverman's testimony is just one piece of evidence that Lewin intends to use as proof that Robert Durst murdered Susan Berman. Like almost all of the evidence, his testimony is circumstantial, requiring the jury to make an inference. There were no witnesses to Susan's murder, and there's no explicit confession from Durst. The case also lacks several forensic elements the jury may expect from TV crime dramas. Notably, there's no DNA, fingerprints, or murder weapon. While Lewin is dependent upon circumstantial evidence, it doesn't mean his case is weak. A verdict can be won solely with circumstantial evidence, as long as the jury is trained to examine it properly. For this jury, Lewin started that training early. During jury selection, the attorneys are allowed to ask the potential jurors a series of questions in a process known as voir dire. Lewin structured his voir dire like a fun pre-law class, defining legal terms and then quizzing prospective jurors on their understanding. At one point, he used a large mounted photo of a trashed kitchen and asked the jury if they would conclude that a robbery had occurred. After the potential jurors discussed the possibilities of what might have happened, Lewin held up a picture of the same scene from a different angle, this one showing his late 85-pound boxer, Boomer, looking sheepish, surrounded by garbage. Lewin asked if it seemed reasonable to conclude that Boomer was responsible for the mess. All the individuals currently in the jury box agreed. Boomer was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. It was possible that something else happened, that the wind blew through the chimney or an earthquake shook the kitchen, but not reasonable. Lewin pointed out that the potential jurors had just reached a verdict based on circumstantial evidence, which was not fake evidence, just evidence of a different kind. This lesson on circumstantial evidence will serve the jury well, not just regarding the death of Susan Berman, but also the death of Morris Black, the next of Robert Durst's alleged victims. Now, Durst continued to monitor the media for reports about the case. But remember, he is living at this point in time in Galveston as a mute woman. He has moved there in November. Susan's murder has happened at the end of December, and he's back in Galveston. In March of 2001, Morris Flatton, <clears throat> 71-year-old drifter, rented a studio in a small boarding house in Galveston. That's going to be the boarding house that Mr. Durst was in. But on March 9th, according to Mr. Durst, Morris knocked on Durst's door and introduced himself. Now, although Morris was chief and 
could be quite cantankerous. He and Durst ended up becoming fast friends. Lewin plays a clip of Durst's interviews for the Jinx. I would describe Morris Black as being a cantankerous in the extreme. Give me an example of that. Morris Black had opinions about anything and he would express them to anybody and he wanted you to get into a conversation with him and if you didn't want to talk to him about whatever it was, he, he, he would argue with you. So he had trouble making friends. <laughs> That's probably the biggest understatement I've heard in a long time. Morris Black made no friends with nobody because he made everybody, he tried, but he made everybody angry. Morris was prickly a cranky elderly man who seemed to enjoy picking fights, but at times he was also charitable. Lewin tells the jury that Morris bought eyeglasses with his own money to hand out to people in need through a charity called the Jesse Tree. Now, shortly after he and Morris met, Durst stopped pretending being a mute woman for Morris. Was there ever a moment when he said, hey, for the last couple of weeks, you've been writing me notes and wearing a wig now you're not writing notes. When well, we can became speak. friendlier as time went on in the following months, he asked about how come you, you know, we're here, we're, we're, why would you rent the apartment as Dorothy Sider and, and like that. And I told him I wanted to disappear and hide. I think I'm, I'm hiding. I don't find anybody recognizing me. And did he judge in any way? Did he say, oh, that was a weird thing to do? Or? No, it was just the opposite. He said, yeah, yeah, I did that a long time ago. Didn't say he changed his name or he dressed like a woman or anything. But yeah, when I said I just didn't want to be Robert Durst anymore, he said, yeah, I went through that. Lewin explains that Durst was living a double life in Galveston, Texas. Sometimes he disguised himself as Dorothy Siner, but he also let his guard down while with Morris, ditching the wig and posing as Dorothy Siner's nephew. Despite Durst's newfound companionship, he didn't get too comfortable in Galveston. Lewin says that the evidence will show that he rented an additional apartment in New Orleans, just in case he needed to make a quick escape. To obtain the rental, Durst once again disguised himself as a mute woman, this time taking the name of Diane Wynn. Now, during the summer of 2001, Morris became aware that Durst was from New York and that he had significant financial resources. So now he knows it's Robert Durst, and he knows he's from New York, and he knows he's got a lot of money. Ted Hanley ran the Jesse Tree Charity. And at the time, the organization was trying to purchase a building, the charity, to further their services. He's going to testify that um, Morris told him that he, Morris, had been talking to someone who had a lot of money who might make the purpose of the building possible. The evidence is going to show that person Morris was referring to was Robert Durst. Lewin informs the jury that Morris asked Durst to fund the Jesse Tree building purchase. In response, Durst decided to test Ted Hanley. He dressed as a homeless person and asked Hanley for $50 so he could get to Beaumont, Texas. Lewin never states whether or not Hanley passed the test. Meantime, when Morris's lease was up, their landlord, Klaus Gilman, Klaus uh, sent Morris a letter telling him, you got to move out. When the letter arrived, Durst was not in Galveston. This is again according to Mr. Durst. Now, the evidence is going to further show that Morris was the kind of person that would yell at other people in the building to turn off your light 
uh, because it was a joint electric bill. He was very cheap, and um, and he had no problem telling people uh, what he thought. And he was a pain, no question about it. And Klaus Dillman had decided, you know what? I don't want to deal with this guy. Now, after the eviction notice, Morris was pressuring Durst, who he knew had a lot of money, to buy a house that they could live in together. And again, how do we know this information? We know it from Bob Durst. And then he got a letter from the landlord that said, get out. And we had been going to open houses for a while. And he had sort of made it known, that, well, if you buy this house, there'll be plenty of room for me. And this is true, there would have been plenty of room for him, except that he, personality, takes up all of everything, and I didn't want him living with me. And I had thought about buying a house there as a place to go sometime, but I wasn't going to live in Galveston full time if I was going to be Robert Durst. Now, during this period of time, Durst was continuing to structure money. And the evidence is going to show this is in preparation for his plan to flee Galveston. During the trial in Galveston, Mr. Durst was asked, how much money had you accumulated by the third week of September of 2001? Five to $600,000. So Mr. Durst is preparing to flee Galveston, but there's a loose end and his name is Morris Black. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. On September 25, 2001, Durst began moving out of his cramped Galveston apartment, and he checked into a room at the nearby San Luis Resort, a four-star luxury establishment with Gulf Coast views and award-winning fine dining. So the evidence is going to show that here we are, three days before North Black is going to die. And Bob Durst is saying that, one, Mort Black knows who he is, knows he's got a lot of money, knows that he is from New York, and circumstantially the evidence will demonstrate that he knows Bob Durst's situation. And there's another problem the evidence is going to show, is that Morris Black is pressuring Bob Durst to get a house with him. Mr. Durst, the evidence will show, it's not a secret that he's leaving. So he is about to leave, and Morris Black wants him to get a house. That's going to be the circumstances right before Morris Black is going to be murdered. September 28th, this is going to prove to be the last day of Morris Black's life. 
Now, during the count, Dick DeGaran stands up in the courtroom. His expression is indignant. He said murder. The jury found him innocent. He said murdered. The jury found him innocent, says DeGaran. No, they found him not guilty. Okay. Not fine. But no Oh, oh, it's different. Now, 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 now. Now, there he goes again. This is a speaking objection. I don't allow them. So, what about counsel addressing me? The exchange between the attorneys illustrates the tightrope walk that the prosecution must execute when discussing the death of Morris Black. While Durst has never been charged in connection to Kathy Durst's disappearance, he was charged and went to trial for the murder of Morris Black. This means that there is a substantial amount of evidence already accumulated regarding Black's death. And there is also already a verdict. The jury found Durst guilty of dismemberment but not murder. That shocking acquittal was won by a defense team led by Dick DeGaran. John Lewin can't reverse the outcome of the Galveston trial. Due to the law of double jeopardy, Durst can't be tried for Black's death a second time. But despite that prior acquittal, Lewin wants to prove to this jury that Durst was guilty of the murder of Morris Black. Because, according to Lewin's case, the murder of Morris Black and the murder of Kathy Durst were inextricably woven into the murder of Susan Berman. What people intend to prove is that this was not accident, it was not self-defense, that Bob Durst killed Morris Black intentionally. There's going to be evidence that Mr. Durst was acquitted, found not guilty. He was not found innocent. It's not what jurors do. Jury made a determination that the evidence that was presented at Galveston at that trial did not meet the burden. We're going to be presenting evidence in this case, and we're going to be arguing that factually what happened was not self-defense or accident, that factually it was murder. But Mr. Durst is not on trial for that murder, and the judge will be instructing you as to how that evidence can be used. So when I say that he murdered Bob Durst, or he murdered Morris Black, I'm not telling you that the jury found that he murdered Morris Black. The jury acquitted him. I'm telling you what the evidence I'm going to present is going to demonstrate. So, Durst's account at trial of what happened can actually be traced back to exactly what he wrote in the BD story prior to his testimony. The BD story, presumably shorthand for the Bob Durst story, is a document authored by Durst prior to the Galveston trial that details the events that occurred between November 1st, 2000 and September 29th, 2001, the day after Morris Black's death. It's a frenetic document, alternating between the style of a blunt daily planner entry and a rambling memoir. In reference to his wedding to the real estate marketing executive, Deborah Chariton, Durst writes, quote, Ask Debbie to marry me, we get license, end quote. But when discussing the disguise he wore as Dorothy Siner, Durst writes several paragraphs, including the following. I gradually came to hate wearing the wig. It itched, it got in my eyes. Unless it was on tight, which made my head sweat, it moved. I went to a bar a couple of times near the post office. On one of these occasions, while lighting a cigarette, several hairs got in the flame and burned my forehead. I jumped up. Lewin calls the BD story a cheat sheet designed to chronicle the information the prosecuting attorneys would and would not be able to disprove. It's the people's opinion that the BD story contains falsehoods, 
specifically when it comes to Morris Black's manner of death. Now, September 28th, Durf was still staying at the San Luis Resort. According to the BD story and his testimony, around 5.45 a.m., he drove his Honda CRV to the B'nai Israel Temple and parked the car. At around 6 a.m., after what Mr. Durf described as a short jog, he arrived at 2213 Avenue, okay? Durst allegedly entered his apartment and found Morris uninvited inside. This is what he says happened. He was in the apartment. I could hear the TV from outside. Opened up the door, ready to start. Oh, and also, since I had taken the key away, he must have made an extra key. Um, and that went through my mind right away. He's in the apartment, he made an extra key. Walk into the apartment, he's sitting at the table. Uh, the, 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 there's a yellow thing on, on a sweater or whatever jacket on top of the table. And I'm, you know, primed, Morris, get out of here, period. I'm leaving, get out, I don't ever want to see you again. He takes the gun out from under whatever the yellow thing is on the, on the table. I grab him and the gun, and we fall down in the kitchen. The gun goes off and shoots him in the side of the face. He also, if you listen to the end of that exchange, the evidence is going to demonstrate, says that I grabbed him and the gun, and we fall down in the kitchen. The gun goes off and shoots him in the side of the face. Mr. Durst described the gun as if it had a mind of its own and that the gun is shooting Morris. No one could stop it. Now, Durst was asked how he felt about what happened because he's now described this horrible situation where Mr. Black, his friend, has allegedly tried to kill him. When you listen to the statement, there's something Mr. Durst isn't going to mention about how he felt. And uh, how did you feel when that happened? I shocked, amazed, overwhelmed, astonished. My elbow hurt, scared. What the evidence in the show Mr. Durst did mention was sorry or horrified or mournful that his friend had just died. Then it's going to demonstrate that the reason Mr. Durst didn't voice those feelings is because he didn't have them. Now, Mr. Durst described his thoughts and feelings immediately of how he felt immediately after the shooting. And this is again, this is in the December 2010 interviews with Jarecki and Swelling. And so suddenly he, that was it, he was dead. Yes, he was dead. And then, now you're in your apartment, Galveston, yeah, Texas. He's dead. And I, this... I, I sat down on the bed for hours trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And then what, through, what went through your mind? I can't go to the police. I can't go to the police. I can't go to the police. The, the police are going to want to investigate it and ask me a zillion questions. I mean, I could just picture myself going to the police precinct to report this. My name is Robert Durst. Um, I rented this $300 a month apartment disguised as a woman named Dorothy Sider. Um, my, my neighbor is lying on the kitchen floor 
with a bullet wound in his face, he's dead. Uh, the bullet came from my gun. Oh, and this is an accident. Oh, and by the way, I'm a rich guy from New York, and my first wife disappeared, and um, I was never charged, but there was lots of speculation that I did it. And they're gonna arrest me. What else could they possibly do? So what did you decide to do to get rid of the body? Well, I decided I'd wait till night and I'd pick it up and carry it out of there. And then I realized I wasn't picking up that body and carrying it anywhere, because it was much, I mean, I wasn't strong enough to do that. I could drag it out, but I just couldn't see. I mean, I thought about putting it in a sleeping bag or something and then dragging the whole thing out, but good God, that's ridiculous. The night of September 28th, Durst left Morris Black's body in the apartment and returned to his hotel room at the San Luis Resort. According to Durst, he got a haircut at the spa and then ordered room service. Fried chicken, salad, a turkey club, chips, and a Guinness. In the morning, Robert woke up and drove his Honda CRV to Economy Liquor, where he picked up a fifth of Jack Daniels before heading to the apartment to dispose of the corpse. It wasn't until the next day when I went, I can't just drag it out. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to dismember this body. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com On the next episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. Took the body parts and put any, everything else there that was bloody, whatever it was, that I ended up cleaning up the place with, put them in the garbage bags. And that, that night, I put the garbage bags in my SUV and drove to find some place to dump the garbage bags. It immediately became obvious to me, I dumped them in the water, they'll sink, nobody would have seen them, the garbage bags are heavy. That's what I did. So you basically just decided you were going to I figured it was deep. It's going to drop it, it's going to sink. <clears throat> Who cares where the tide is going? It's underwater, nobody's going to see it. On October 9th, Durst went to pick up a glasses prescription, and the police were waiting for him. But was your intention when you put up the $250,000 to run away? Oh, goodbye $250,000, goodbye jail, I, I'm, I'm out. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst was created by Carrie Ann Tholis. This episode was hosted and produced by Carrie Antholis and co-produced by Chris Terracone. The episode was written by Molly Miller with contributions from Karen Ann Coburn, Sean Smith, and Chris Terracone. The episode was edited by Tristan Friedberg Rodman. Music was provided by Strike Audio. 
For more information about the Robert Durst trial, head over to crimestory.com. This has been a Crime Story Media and ACAST presentation. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.